I invite you to turn now to Ephesians chapter 1, verses 11 through 14. I'm going to be reading from the English Standard Version of the Bible, and I should probably point out <clears throat> that the English Standard Version, the New American Standard Version, the New King James Version, other such translations translate verse 11 in one way, and the NIV and other dynamic equivalence translations translate verse 11 another way. And the reason concerns, there's some discussion about how to translate a particular Greek verb in this verse. But at the end of the day, the sense is basically the same. So those kinds of differences need not distract us this morning. Reading from the ESV, Paul says, In him, that is in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined, according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. This is God's holy word. Let us pray. <clears throat> Almighty Father, whose word is living and active and breathed out by your Holy Spirit and therefore profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness, enlighten our otherwise blind minds so that we may understand and we may believe and we may live according to what you have given us here in your most holy word. Grant to us humble hearts this morning Guard us against any hardness that is at enmity with you. Bring into the right way any who may have strayed from the truth so that all of us may serve you in holiness and righteousness all the days of our lives. We ask this from you, most merciful Father and Savior Jesus. Amen. About a year ago, I received in the mail an envelope from an attorney in Fort Collins, Colorado, and in that envelope was a check made out to me for a particular sum of money. Uh, while the sum was not enormous, it was quite generous. Uh, in the letter, the attorney told me that he had been the executor of the estate of a deceased uncle and aunt, and although I had not been named in their will as a beneficiary of their estate, my cousins had chosen in love to share some of their inheritance with my two brothers and with me. And their generosity humbled me, and it also reminds me at this point how 
often an inheritance involves giving and receiving among individuals who share a deep family love with each other. And we see that in our passage here as Paul compares our salvation in Christ now to receiving an inheritance. Sharing in the love of the Godhead, the love of the Father, the love of the Son, and the love of the Holy Spirit is our glorious inheritance. And already as children of God, we know that love in some measure in our hearts. In Romans 5, Paul says we rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. And in that chapter, he also says, God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us these foretastes of God's love that we enjoy in this world hold out to us now the hope of sharing that love with God in glory with a joy, with a happiness, with a fullness that exceeds any blessing that you and I have ever known in this world. And this is all because our inheritance, Paul says in verse 11, was according to the counsel of the triune God. I want you to think about that. Each person of the Godhead had a role in our salvation. In the depths of eternity past, God the Father had his eyes of love on each of his children and he planned their salvation and their inheritance accordingly. But then that plan is experienced at some point in time when God uniquely calls those he has chosen into a relationship with himself as his children by faith. In the saving work of God the Son. And in addition, those who God calls into a relationship with himself, he also seals. By sending God the Holy Spirit into our hearts as a seal, as a down payment, as a guarantee of receiving our final inheritance in glory. You see, because our inheritance is the work of each person of the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, our hope in sharing in the love of God in glory is indomitable. And in this passage, our indomitable hope of receiving our inheritance is established on three great realities. First, the plan of God's love. You know, it sometimes happens in this world that there are children who fondly dream of what they might inherit from a parent who are deeply disappointed. I mean, consider the case of Cecil Rhodes. Rhodes was an Englishman. Rhodes made a huge fortune in diamond mining in South Africa. He died at a relatively young age. But he left most of his inheritance not to his family, to their deep disappointment, but instead to endow the famous Rhodes Scholarship Program. Now there it is, Rhodes' disappointed brother is supposed to have said, I suppose I shall have to win a scholarship. Now the child of God 
I mean, even if you have never received a great earthly inheritance, your heavenly Father's eyes of love were on you in the depths of eternity, and He ordained a glorious inheritance for you. It is written, the scriptures say, that no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love Him. And what does our inheritance involve? Well, we can say two things. First, God's glorious presence. Our inheritance involves God's glorious presence. In verses 11 and 14, Paul refers to our inheritance. But what should we make of this concept? Well, the background for this concept is found in the Old Testament. And often the Old Testament speaks about the land of promise as the inheritance of God's people. And no doubt that land was a great blessing. But there is also a sense in which the inheritance of the land was transcended by God's greater promises of His presence as his inheritance for his children. Psalm 73, for example, verses 25 through 26 say, Whom have I in heaven but you, and there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Lamentations, chapter 3, verse 24, I say to myself, the Lord is my portion. Therefore, I will wait for him. And this promise of God's presence as our inheritance is sharpened further in the New Testament. Paul in Romans 8, for example, says believers are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. And we know from John's gospel how Christ longed for the glorious presence of his father on the eve before he gave himself as a sacrifice for our sins. In the upper room, John says, Jesus prayed, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. I mean, do you hear in those words how he thirsts, how he pants after deeper communion in love with the presence of his Father in glory? Now, here's the rub. I wonder if we can identify with Jesus' experience here, even if it's only in a small way. I mean, let's be honest with ourselves. Does this hope of inheriting deeper communion in the love of God, in glory, excite you? Or does it leave you disappointed? As I think about that, I think about an experience at Christmas at times. You know, when we were children, when we were children, most of us did not want socks or underwear for Christmas. I mean, yes, we knew that they were good and we needed them because that's what our parents said. But oh, the disappointment. I mean, we could think of many other things we would rather received than socks or underwear. Well, does inheriting the presence of God seem like socks and underwear to you when you compare it to hitting the links of Scotland or sailing the blue of the Caribbean or hiking the majesty of the Rockies? I mean, you see, does our hesitation at this point reflect how little we really know an experiential sense of delighting in the presence of God now? 
And isn't that why we cling so tightly to this world? I mean, we have convinced ourselves that we have nothing of real significance to look forward to. Oh, child of God, this, this isn't your only life. This isn't even your best life. The best is yet to come. In the Gospel of John, Jesus whets our appetites for what awaits us by referring to the presence of God in glory as finally being home. That's what glory is. It's being home. On the night before his own death, he comforted himself with the hope of being at home with the Father. And he sought to comfort his disciples in the very same way with that hope. He said, in my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. You see, the hope of being home led Paul write the Corinthians. We know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed. We have a building from God, a home, not made with hands eternal in the heavens. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. In the scriptures, home is the place where life flourishes fully, spiritually, physically, socially. Home is the place where our most intimate love relationships are nurtured. Home is the place of rest and peace and joy. And isn't that what our hearts are longing for? Because this world as it now exists is not our home. I mean, we were made for a place without dying and parting from love, without decay and disease and aging. We are therefore strangers and aliens here because the human race turned from God to live for itself. Our first parents were banished from the garden of God and the face of God whose presence is our true home. And that's why there's this longing in the human heart for rest and peace and love and permanence. And all of that God has planned as an inheritance for His children who will dwell in His presence in glory. You see, what does our inheritance involve? What in God's glorious presence? But secondly... Christ's glorious likeness. Christ's glorious likeness. In verse 5, Paul said that the Father predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. But what does this predestination to adoption mean except to be conformed to the glorious likeness of Jesus? In his letter to the Romans, Paul writes that those whom God foreknew, in other words, foreloved in eternity past, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. You see, on the day of our Lord's return, God will have completed the work that He began in us and with spirits now made perfect and joined to bodies transformed, we, along with all the people of God, 
in a new heaven, in a new earth, will enjoy the fullness of fellowship with God and with one another that is our inheritance, planned by God long ago. And my friends, neither sin nor weakness of body or mind will hamper us any longer from expressing the totality of our love for the Lord. I mean, the fact that God has predestined this for His children assures us that He will most certainly bring it to pass. Oh, there, yes, there is so much at present that is evil, that is broken, that is twisted and discouraging. But for the children of God, in some mysterious way, God will overrule it to the glory of His grace and it will all be swallowed up in the victory of Christ. Oh, my friends, this is not an idle sentiment. This is not a sentiment that belongs on a Hallmark card. This is the gospel truth. And I believe it's sad that so many of God's professing children seem ignorant of it or indifferent to it. Our indomitable hope of receiving our inheritance is established on the plan of God's love. And second, the call of God's love. Paul speaks in verse 13 about the necessity of hearing the word of truth, that is the good news of our salvation in Christ, but also of believing in Jesus as Savior. Now that's helpful, isn't it? Let no one say that the doctrines of election and predestination make evangelism and personal faith unnecessary. In fact, it's exactly the opposite that's the case. It's only, you see, it's only because of God's electing and predestinating grace that evangelism has any hope of success. And that faith in Jesus is even possible. I mean, the preaching of the gospel is the very means that God has appointed by which he delivers from blindness and bondage those whom he chose in Christ before the foundation of the world. Verse 13 is referring to an experience theologians sometimes call the effectual call of God. There is an element in mystery of this, but many of us know how this goes. I mean, many of us knows what it is to hear God powerfully and personally addressing us through a passage of the Bible or perhaps a sermon that we have heard. But then later, we share our insight with others and it just falls on deaf ears. Now, why exactly? We may not be able to say, but we do know that God in His sovereign grace has spoken to us. And this is not unusual. I mean, two people can, they can hear the same evangelistic sermon, and one will hear Christ calling him to faith, while the others hear only the words of the preacher. And now again, this how exactly this may be escapes us, but we do know there is a difference, don't we, between a general call and an effectual call. The Bible shows us two different calls of God. First is a general call of the Bible. Every human being, by virtue of being created in the image of God, has an awareness of God as soon as he or she has any self-awareness at all. The image of God in people is ground zero for understanding God's world and for knowing God. The natural world is God's creation. It's His creation. 
And because of that, it manifests the invisible attributes of God the Maker. His wisdom, His power, His glory. John Calvin called the natural order appropriately the theater of God's glory. And that is what makes the natural order so special and so wonderful. God's revelation of His character in the creation, it it just rises above the barriers of language and culture. It just presses upon all people everywhere at all times. Paul describes this in Romans chapter 1. In Romans 2, he also says there's a sense in which people, as beings created in the image of God, have God's law written on their hearts. People are not insignificant entities. People are not mere animals. God created people as His image bearers. Ah, but there is a problem. And the problem is that people dead in sin naturally suppress the knowledge of God He has given them. They intentionally distort the truth they know. And this is why the general call to believe the good news about Jesus is not always well received. In fact, instead of softening hearts and drawing people to Christ... The preaching of the gospel may actually result in hardening as people hear and reject, hear and reject, hear and reject the good news time and time again. And thus Jesus warned, take care then how you hear. First is the general call of God, but second is the effectual call of God. Now, here's something interesting. One of the most often used one-word descriptions of the Christian is of being called by God. At different places, later in this letter, Paul will refer to the believers in Ephesus as being called. There's a common saying that goes, the same sun that melts the wax also hardens the clay. And that proverb applies here. I mean, the call of the gospel hardens some, but it softens others. And the great determining factor is this effectual call of God going forth with grace and power, transforming the heart that is hardened by sin. Now, the mysterious nature of this effectual call is wonderfully illustrated, we've said before, in the Gospel of John when Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. I mean, how could a dead man hear Jesus' call? How can a dead man obey Jesus' call? There is something at work here that is beyond our reckoning, but God's effectual call proves how every conversion to faith in Jesus, whether it's young or old, whether it is remembered or not, is a miracle of divine grace and power. And God uses almost limitless diversity in how He calls people into relationship with Himself through Spirit-given faith in Jesus. A person's calling from God is uniquely tailored to the particular plans God has for each of His children. And my friends, it is a grave error to seek another person's conversion experience for oneself or to believe that others, maybe our children, must imitate our own. That's an error. 
God deals with His children in an individual and personal way. Our indomitable hope of receiving our inheritance is established first on the plan of God's love, second on the call of God's love, and then finally on the seal of God's love. All of the spiritual blessings we enjoy in Christ are rooted in our election by God. But God's election of us is revealed by the working of His Holy Spirit in us, giving us new life and faith in Jesus. Listen again to Paul. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. Now Paul says an awful lot in those verses. But the most natural way of understanding Paul's words here is that hearing and believing and sealing by the Spirit all accompany the same saving reality. Now, this image of sealing can be understood in at least two ways. First, the Holy Spirit indwells the believer as a mark of God's ownership. The Holy Spirit indwells the believer as a mark of God's ownership, just as a seal crushed into the flyleaf page of a book marks it as belonging to a particular person, so the indwelling presence of God marks us as belonging to God. We no longer belong to ourselves. We belong to God. We belong to God as His adopted children, and He paid a mighty price, the death of His Son Jesus for our sins, to gather us into His arms of fatherly love. And, and the fact that we belong to a wise and merciful and powerful God gives us peace. It gives us hope. But there's a second thing here. The Spirit indwells the believer as a pledge of our inheritance, as a down payment of our inheritance. The Spirit indwells a believer as a down payment, as a guarantee that God will complete the saving work He has begun in the believer. You drive by houses at times. How do you know whether that house is occupied or not? Well, the occupants of a house keep it in repair. And in the same way, the indwelling Spirit of God in us keeps our faith and our salvation in repair. We are secure in the Lord. Now we've said that God employs great diversity in how He effectually calls His chosen ones to new life and faith in Jesus. But there is an experience I think that we can all identify with on some level. And that experience was related years ago by the great Bible teacher Harry Ironside. Ironside told the story about an older Christian who was invited to give a testimony of his faith in Jesus. And the man told the people there how God had sought him and found him, how God had loved him and called him and saved him and cleansed him and healed him. 
And it was a wonderful testimony to the electing grace and power of God. But this sometimes happens after you preach or after you teach, after the meeting. A younger believer criticized him roundly, saying that while he appreciated what the man had said about what God had done for him, he had not said anything about what he had done. And the young believer said, you know, salvation is really part us and part God. Oh yes, the old veteran said, I apologize for that. I really should have said more about my part. My part was running away and God's part was running after me until he caught that's an experience every child of God can identify with. My friends, we have all run away. But God has chosen us, predestined us, called us to faith, and sealed us for the day when we will enter into our full inheritance on the day of Christ's return. Brothers and sisters, to God alone be the glory for our salvation. Let us pray. Almighty God, we marvel that our salvation is the fruit of the counsel of the Godhead. God the Father electing, God the Son redeeming, God the Holy Spirit giving faith and sealing. Lord, we glory. We glory in this salvation that you have made available to who shall ever receive it from you as a gift. Lord, may all of us know by simple faith in Jesus as Savior, your love poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit. And we pray that these foretastes of love that we know in this world is a love that will grow. We pray that we have this hope that it will grow and that we will know it unabetted on the day of our Lord's return in glory, in a new heaven, in a new earth, all together as the people of God. We offer our prayers to the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.